Revelation chapter 4. If you have a Bible or a smartphone, would you look at it with me? We're going to go slow this. I'm not going to read the whole thing and then comment. I'm kind of going to take it really slow. You making fun of me, Tabitha? It was definitely not real. Haven't you guys not seen that this week after you bought Twitter? Everyone's been posting, I'm going to buy Seattle and I'll get the West Seattle Bridge fixed. I'm going to buy, like I saw, the, I seen those tweets and then this morning the light went off in my head. I could finish the sermon or I could make an Elon Musk tweet and I decided that Elon Musk tweet was more fun than finishing the sermon. Revelation chapter 4. John has his, uh, his intro image of Jesus in chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3, he begins to talk about these letters to the seven churches. I think we're going to actually come back to them at the end. Uh, the lectionary doesn't give us space for that, but I think we're going we're gonna to come back to it anyway. Uh, and then you get to the heart of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and chapter 5. That I would argue if you don't understand 4 and 5, if we don't get these two chapters, we'll miss the rest of the book. So I'm not telling you this sermon's going to be sexy, but it's going to be important. Um, we've got to get this. Verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door, and standing open in heaven. And the voice I had I'd first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this at once i was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. By the way, think about that image of the rainbow. You find, it's, again, Revelation has, Im, like, in this chapter, in chapter 5, we're going to have images from Ezekiel. There's going to be images from Isaiah. There's going to be images from Genesis and Exodus. Right here, we've seen the rainbow, which will highlight not only kind of one of the prophetic uh, images, I think it's Ezekiel, but certainly takes us back to the Noah story. Uh, what verse was I in? Somebody has, whenever I stop, would somebody just mark in their Bibles what verse I stopped in? I think it's verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper coming in, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Chuck, this kind of goes to your heavenly court imagery a little bit. Uh, and seated on them were the 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold and jasper. Does anyone, again, we talked last week in our conversation that imagery is so key to the book of Revelation. Does anyone care to speculate? Who are these 24 elders? Israel and You're not allowed to answer the questions. We're trying to have conversation here. Can we all just groan for a second out loud audibly? <sighs> Spoiler alert. Numbers are really important to the book of Revelation. So when you see 24, most scholars seem to think that that represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which are a symbolic representation of the entirety of the people of God. Does that make sense? 
So as John is giving us this vision, and surrounding the one who is on the throne is the 24 uh, thrones, I believe that John is giving us a vision of the entirety of the people of God surrounding this throne room. Let's keep going. Mark, what verse was in? Verse 5, cool. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals and thunder. Before the throne were seven lamps. They were blazing, not like Seattle blazing. I got a good laugh. That was really good. Thank you. Um, appreciate that. They, these, and thank you, John. We should thank John here because John actually, in all the imagery, John gives us a pic, just tells us what this is. These are the seven spirits of God, which we talked last week, really are the representation of the spirit. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, and it was clear as crystal. Ken Seer, do you realize how cool that image is? Well played. Think back, and I, I always get nervous doing this now that we're online, because uh, 10 years ago, nine years ago, when I first became a pastor, I just blatantly stole this image from uh, Pastor Mark Woodward's brother-in-law. You, you think back to Genesis and the tohu vivohu, uh, the chaos, the, the formless and void that represents in the Hebrew the chaos. I, I blatantly stole that, and so I've been nervous to use that ever since we went online, because people will say, but then I, then I ran into uh, two other places where I found it. Rob Bell actually did a lecture on it. And, and then I found it in a commentary. And so once it's not just one person you hear it from, but three other sources, I think it's okay to insert it back in, right? Dad, is that okay? Okay. See, I, and I just gave you my sources, so that's good. Uh, in Genesis, you get the picture of the watery chaos. And how does God create in Genesis 1? It is this... What? Oh, sorry. Thank you. <laughs> we all appreciate that. Um, in Genesis 1, the pivot is from the chaos, the formless and void, to shalom, to goodness, to holiness, to love. And then the interesting thing is when you get to the Noah story, it's a pivot back. It's a pivot back from the goodness. Well, you get to the fall. It's a pivot back from the goodness back to chaos. And I would argue then when you get to the Noah story, that's what you see. The chaos waters come flooding back in. So when John in the heavenly throne room has this vision of a crystal clear sea. What is he seeing? He has seen no chaos. Think about that culture who watery, watery chaos represented death. In fact, there was some belief in that culture that it was when you died, you went under the waters. And so when John sees this image of this water and it's still and it's crystal, he is saying the chaos that you see in our world it is not the reality of heaven. Mark, where was I? Uh, you start, you're about to start at 6B. 6B. That, wow, B, that's not very helpful. I know, this is taking so long. Okay. In the center around the throne. Thank you, Mark. That was not a, I was not insulting you by any means. I really appreciate that. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. What does a lion say, guys? There we go. <laughs> the second was like an ox. Parker, what does an ox say? Okay, thanks, Parker. What does the fox say? Ding, 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 ding. Sorry. I was up late writing this, and Emily 
came down and interrupted because I interrupted her Netflix because of the internet. So, it's, yeah, it's the internet's fault. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. Even under his wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Um, Dad, I won't ask you to not answer this one because I, that's just weird. That's weird imagery. Do you have a theory on who the four creatures are? Okay, so that's one, but that's not the dominant. That is not the, like, so if you tie that in with Ezekiel, many commentators, when they look at the four creatures, yeah, it's like, this is the U.S., and this is Russia, and this, or this is Rome, this is, those, those kind of things. Um, but the m- more contemporary scholarship, there, well, there's some that say it's representative of the four Gospels. One is like Matthew, one is like Luke, one is like John. One, that's, that's a bit wishy-washy to me. I'm not sure I'm convinced. Um, the one I am convinced by is, and this comes out of most, I would say 90% of my sources said that the four living creatures are representative of all of creation. So you've got the wild animal kingdom, you've got the tamed animal kingdom, you've got humanity, you've got birds. And so the, the, the argument, and I am convinced by this, you don't have to be, it's okay if you want to be wrong, Sylvia. Um, but <laughs> just the argument is that before the throne room, You have the 24 elders, which represent the entirety of the people of God, and you have the four living creatures, which represent the entirety of the living cosmos, the animals and humanity, and they are present. And what are they present doing? They are present saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sit on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders or the people of God, they fell down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have been. So John has entered into this picture of worship. It's interesting, at assembly uh, uh, this year, they brought in uh, Professor Andrew Root who was uh, essentially talking about the ways in which our culture has fundamentally shifted. Kristen and I, uh, we just signed Tanner up for, par- uh, for soccer. And uh, luckily we didn't have to have the conversation, but she, she kind of pre-snuck the conversation in if it was going to be needed. Um, and she essentially said, I'm assuming there's kind of two options for the Sunday soccer. One is kind of a 2, 2.30 option and one is a 12.30 option. And she said, if we can't get in the 2.30, I'm assuming you're not good with the 12.30. Is that right? I said, probably not. But give me a day to think about it. Luckily, the two uh, o'clock one opened up so we don't have to conflict with with the gathering um, for worship. But Andrew Root gave this talk about the ways in which culture is really no longer shaping uh, the, the rhythms of life around the rhythms of the body of Christ. In, in, in about a month, we just know, well, first of all, we know the statistics in America, um, at least going into COVID, 
was that most average church attenders will now attend church about uh, once a month. Um, we have no idea what that means coming out of COVID, though our district superintendent did say the statistics for WAPAC are that coming out of COVID, churches are, seeing, are only seeing about 40 to 50% of their congregation coming back. So it's not, I mean, I, we're actually above that, but if you're, if you're someone who is thinking, uh, we're not, we don't have as many people as we had before, you're right, but we're actually statistically, um, in terms of percentages, uh, doing okay in terms of the larger trends. Um, which, which then forces us to have lots of conversation about what is worship and gathering for worship and, 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 and what is the importance of this thing we do that's kind of awkward to the rhythms of our life, especially in the busyness of our culture. Uh, depending on the conversation, there's parts of me that want to release us from some of the guilt behind that. Because the reality is the kingdom of God is much bigger than simply one hour on a Sunday. And sometimes we have barreled down to church being this thing we do when we gather. And yet at the same time, I want to honor that, that biblically and kind of historically and even uh, sociologically, like the rhythms that we give ourselves to in life matter. And so in many ways, we are what we worship. And whether we gather for worship in church or whether we gather for worship on a Sunday in front of football or whether we gather for worship uh, in a park, like we will be shaped by the things we give ourselves to. And so it's interesting here that John, when he gives us the picture of the revelator, it is in the throne room in a worship service. Mark's brother-in-law last week was preaching on this text, uh, and it was interesting that he, he uh, at this point, kind of used the illustration of Europe. And in many ways, Europe has kept the kind of state church model. And, and so Europe's way ahead of us, way ahead of us, in that the church is, in many ways, dead. I mean, it's not dead, but, but statistics are awful, awful, like worse than Western Washington. Now, we are seeing that speed up very fast in America, but largely America and the church in America has statistically, at least, we could have other arguments, <laughs> but statistically, the church has done much better um, over the last 50 years than Europe. And, and so Mark's brother-in-law argues that why is that? His answer was that it's capitalism. Because we have created a, su a subculture of church with a, within the capitalist uh, uh, tradition that says we are going to market to you and we are going to make church about you and we are going to do whatever we have to do to gimmick up this thing called church so that we can be attractive and if we're attractive enough or at least more attractive than the church down the road then, then we'll draw. It's interesting some of the conversations even that have come up in our church around the setup Couches or no couches, pews or no pews, kids on the stage or no kids on the stage, songs that we sing, are we going to sing contemporary, are we going to sing Maverick City music, or are we going to sing hymns, are we going to sing, that we are, are we going to, are we going to have, are we going to, are we going to have people preach from kind of like the front of the, the sanctuary or the stage area, or are we going to, are we going to worship in the round?
many ways we in Western America have grown up in a church culture that has catered to us. And so we have largely uh, chosen churches based on what we like. And it's interesting in the text in Revelation that John is brought into a worship service. And the worship service, the worship in this service is centered on the one who is on the throne. And so one, maybe, maybe the good news for us today, uh, and, and let me tie Lorenzo into this. I hope it's okay, Lorenzo. Maybe, yeah. Uh, Lorenzo and I don't care if you like the music today. Because it wasn't about them, was it? And, and just, I mean, just between you and me, I like interior design, and so if you want to have interior design conversations, I'm nerdy enough to enjoy that. But ultimately, I'm not sure I really care if you like or not like the setup. Because it's not about the setup. It's about the one who is on the throne. And by the way, this is probably the single greatest gift that worship gives us. Well, that's probably not true. That's probably an overstatement. One of the single greatest gifts that worship gives us is this counterformational. In a world that teaches you, Mark, you are the center of your own throne. Christian, you are the center of your own throne. Davina, the world is going to teach you that you are the center of your own throne, that your whole life is about you. She actually looked at me. I love you. You're so wonderful. Here's what Revelation wants to remind us. You are not on the throne. Davina, we love you so much but you are not sitting on the throne. I got a smile. <laughs> Christian, your hair is probably better than mine, but as cool as your hair is, you are not the one sitting on the throne. Revelation wants to remind us that there is another on the throne, and we gather not to worship ourselves. We gather not to worship the cutest baby we ever know, but we gather to worship the one who is sitting on the throne. That's probably good for that. Chapter 5. I have no idea what time it is, so if you have lunch plans and you need to leave, I totally get it. Is it really? Good Lord. Um, are you that bored, Ken Steve? That's a big snore. Um, I, I don't know any way to fast forward. I mean, I do know how to fast forward this, but it's not like I can end it right here. Unless, mm, no. I'll end fast, kind of. If you need to leave, you can leave, and the podcast will be online later. Um, gosh, this is so tough. Do I just end here and come back to it? I think it's worth uh, what, what? I think it's worth pacing it. I do too. Okay, okay, okay. That's the other side. That is, yeah, yeah. Because, because that, to end now, some level would counteract the very point I just made about worship being about us. Oh, man. I just kind of fit myself into a box. That's terrible. I should have been smarter than that. Yeah, the lamb saves me. So if you think I'm going too long and that makes you mad, well, just deal with the lamb. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. I'll, let me read it all. And then I'll comment so we don't just go verse by verse. In this moment of worship, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with a writing on both sides. And this scroll was sealed with seven seals. 
I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, you dummy. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb. If we were doing a good TV show, by the way, this would have been like the end of a season and, and it would have been the shocker, cliffhanging moment. You're not shocked right now because we've grown up in the church, but you should be. We'll come back to it in just a sec. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircling the four living creatures, all of creation, and the elders, all of the church. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. earth. He came and took the scroll from his right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the church. Goodness gracious, we're going to be here till one. Um, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you you purchased uh, men for God and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You were made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to be praise and glory and power forever and ever and the four living creatures all of creation said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. I would be smart to stop there but I can't. John sees a scroll. What's the scroll? Almost universally, in terms of the scholarship I use, the scroll is this picture image of God's plans for creation. Now again, I want to be careful. It is not that God has predetermined. Like, it doesn't, I I want to be careful of the free will thing, but I also don't want to be too careful. So there's a nuance there that we probably need more time to talk about. But, but the scroll represents God's plans. And what, how, how do we summarize those plans uh, briefly? God's plans for the shalom of the world. A world where there is no war. A world where there is no rape. A world where there is no hatred. A world where there is nobody who goes to bed without having clean drinking water or a meal. A world where there is no racism. A world where there is no systems that uh, continue to perpetuate said racism. This is what the scroll is. The scroll is this picture of God's shalom that he intended for the world. And John weeps bitterly because the, 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 the scroll is sealed. God's plans for the world, God's shalom for the world, God's goodness for the world cannot be opened. Because why? Because we humanity have made a mess. Because there's Putins who do dumb things. Not just dumb things, who do evil things. But by the way, at assembly, we weren't just told of this. It's not just a matter of getting, I, I can't curse, it's a sermon. It's not just a matter of getting dumb Putin 
evil Putin to stop bombing. But do you realize there are actually um, there are actually evil bad actors who are ready when 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 women and children come back to like Kiev. There are actually systems set up knowing that they are going to come back in poverty to take advantage of them and 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 get them into slavery. John weeps because when he looks and he sees that there is no one who can open the scroll. There is no one. There is no system. Capitalism can't do it. Socialism can't do it. Um, Conservatism can't do it. Trump can't do it. Biden can't do it. Obama couldn't do it. Reagan didn't do it. The red, white, and blue aren't going to do it. And so John weeps bitterly because when he looks at the plans, the goodness, the shalom, that God would have had in this scroll, he weeps because he understands there is no one that can open the scrolls. But then, one of the one of the the, the beings says, "But wait, there is one." And in this imagery, he says lion, which has all that kind of prophetic Old Testament imagery about the lion of the tribe of Judah, going all the way back into the prophetic tradition, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is going to come and kick Caesar's. You know what? The lion has this kind of dominant warlike image. The lion, which definitely would have loved the Second Amendment. The lion of the tribe of Judah. John hears lion, but when John looks, he doesn't see lion. What does he see? A lamb. And not just a lamb, a slaughtered lamb. Without doubt, this is image connected to the cross. What is going on in this image? In this vision of worship, call it deconstruction and reconstruction, call it the Holy Spirit simply grabbing our attention and saying, you got to have a bigger imagination, call it whatever you want. John is saying, redemptive violence, bull. Peace through strength, bull. What is the pathway forward for the world? The lamb who was slain. That is the pathway forward. And in response, and I will close now, in response, we are back into a moment of worship. And by the way, in this moment of worship, I dare you not to see the universality of the response. Where does it say? Then I looked, verse 11, and I heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne. Verse 13, then I heard every... Okay, language, let's take it seriously. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth... And under the earth and on the sea, all of them saying to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory. The response John gets to this one who is slain is a universal response of worship. I got a whole page, but I'm going to stop.
what are the big takeaways? The bigger takeaways are we, we need to be a people who gather for worship because, because in a world, and, and I, this is going to be counterintuitive, and I will say things in conversation over dinner that, that show that my imagination isn't even big enough for this. I will counter, like when I get up tomorrow morning and I listen to political talk radio, I will say, yeah, but that yeah will have behind it the stuff that counteracts this. Um, We need to be a people who gather for worship because we need to be counterformed. Because, because like you, when I heard Zelensky say, I don't need a ride, I need weapons or whatever, I cheered. I'm like, yeah, get them weapons. But the problem is, is that's not the picture the revelator gives us. The, the revelator says that's, Zelensky is not, Zelensky's way is not the way that brings us peace. It's not the way that brings us shalom. The way to shalom is the only way to shalom is through a lamb that's slain. I'm going to end there. I'm not even going to go to the table there um, because I want to walk away from today's service with the weight of that, knowing that next Sunday when we come back to the table, that weight will set in. So Father, help us. Help us to be a people caught up into the, the, the heavenly realm reminded that we we too need counterformation we need to be we need to be shocked so shock us shock us in worship help us to be present and help our imaginations to be caught not by not by the systems of our world but by the counterintuitive, peaceable way of the Lamb who was slain. And help us as the body of Christ, a, a politic unto ourselves, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to then live that politic out in the world peaceably, to participate in the realities of heaven coming on earth with your spirit. In your name, amen.